when we come to 1 Samuel, now I, I read that whole chapter and I know that doesn't often happen, but do remember there was a time that they opened the scripture when they had returned from the, the exile and they read from early morning all the way till noon with everybody standing. So we did pretty good. Just a few minutes with everybody seated relatively comfortably. But I wanted to read the whole chapter to get a sense of where we're going and what we're going to consider. Want us to also remember whenever we open these up, these aren't just stories and they're not just historical accounts. They are historical accounts, but not merely that. These ones have been written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages have fallen. There are things in here, revealed in here, that if we don't get them, we're going to miss out on clear truths that God wants us to know about himself. Now, this is in that period of time where Israel has become a nation. The Exodus has been completed out of that slavery. All of the wilderness travels and journeys and trials and difficulties completed. The moving in and the conquest of the land completed to the degree it was, though there were still some populace remaining of the original communities. We'd gone through the season of the judges where there was all kinds of conflict and attack by the Philistines and attack by other groups and God continued to each time that they would compromise, bring them into subjection, they would then plead with God, help us, deliver us. And God would again raise up a deliverer and deliver them out. And it went round and round and round again. As we come to 1 Samuel, we're really looking at sort of the, the very end and last of the judges. Uh, here we ha we, we're not even going to be focusing too much on Eli. He will come in following chapters. But we have this, this opening section here. And as, as we've come to this, remember, no temple is built yet. All right. So as, they, as they've traveled, each place they would stop, they would set up the tabernacle. And then when it was time to move on, they would break that tabernacle tent down and they would move on to the next place and reset it up. Uh, even as they came into the land they had set it up in in certain places for certain times but by this point it's now found its temporary resting place in Shiloh Eli is the one who is serving as the chief priest at this time and the people are making generally pilgrimages often annually to come to this place to offer sacrifices and to worship the Lord in that place is where the uh, Ark of the Covenant was that represented to the people God's presence with them. Now we're thankful that we live in a different age and in a different covenant and we know that we don't need a specific object, item, or location to represent God's presence with us anymore. That indeed he, he takes up and makes his presence and residence within us individually and also within us as a community of saints. When we, one thing I also want to point out in this context, it can be a little challenging, Elkanah. Not that we're going to have an exam, but most of us probably won't know the genealogy of Elkanah. If I was to ask some of you, do you care about the genealogy of Elkanah? Some would say, I do not care in the least. 
But there is something I do want you to know with regard to Elkanah is, is that he would have been one who is a descendant of the Levites. Okay, And that is significant because his son Samuel is going to be there taking up a priestly role and a service role which is significant. For those who are interested, some of the challenge comes in this way and this is why there, there can be some confusion. The Levites themselves were not allotted lands. So they received lands within the lands of the other tribes. And so as time would go by, somebody who was a Levite would often be referred to with, by the tribe that he was living among. An example of that would be, for example, in Judges 17, Verse 7, it says, Now there was a young man of Bethlehem in Judea, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite. And you say, wait a second, that doesn't work. Either he was of Judah or he was a Levite. He can't be both. No, he was indeed a Levite who was stationed among that community and among that people. That's what Elkanah and his family became in Ephraim. Okay? So just to trace this out, how this, the, these basic things are beginning to unfold. Now, as we come to this, we see also at the beginning, you could see it in uh, verse 21, the man Elkanah and his, all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. All right, so this is a pattern. It was a pattern that many were doing, tragically not all, but Elkanah's family, you get this sense, it is more of a devout family, a Levitical family. They understand their responsibility before God. They're seeking to live up to their covenantal responsibility in those old covenant days. Go and visit, make their sacrifices, pay their vows. They're seeking to do things in a seeming godly way. Now as this unfolds, there are peculiarities in this story uh, that sometimes catch us off guard. Elkanah had two wives. This was not wise. If you, the, two wives were permitted in that time and permitted in that society, but even when those things began to be introduced and suddenly Hagar is taken as a second wife to Abraham, how did that work out? Tension and prov problems and rivalry and provocation arose. What, were, what, what happens if uh, the two wives are sisters? There can still be problems and tensions and rivalries. And then among their children, there can be animosity and, and struggles. And we know that with Rachel and Leah and, and into the story of Joseph. Well, here again, it is a situation where a man has taken himself two wives. And among these two wives, we, we're able to see as this begins to unfold, um, distinctly different characters between these two women. And, and as you read the story, uh, our natural tendency is to think uh, Hannah is, is, is sweet and she seems to be uh, godly and caring and loving. And the other one, Peninnah, is horrible. She's brutal. She, she is just thoughtless, callous, 
condemning, hurtful. And so we generally might step back from that and say, therefore, Hannah should be blessed of God. Everything, Hannah should be fruitful, bountiful, successful, happy. She should have because she's the more righteous among the two. She should have the more blessing among the two. And Peninnah, with her hard and hurtful heart, she ought to be barren. She ought to have problems. She ought to have difficulties. When we measure these things out with the the mind of man, we think the one who deserves God's greater kindness and provision and earthly blessing, we would say it should go to Hannah and Peninnah should be denied. And so what happens when we begin to open this passage and we begin to see this is we're absolutely shocked uh, by the problems that are going on there. And I, I would say that the first thought is the, there are, we face the conundrums of practical providence, which means we look at something that God is doing, allowing in our life or allowing in this world, and we say, uh, no, I don't get it. This doesn't seem right. And tragically, sometimes we think, God, I know a better way. I know a better plan. We're wrong when we think that, but as we were thinking before, our thoughts of God are too human. When, if I was God and I saw that hard-hearted, provoking, mocking, slighting, condemning wife, I would make sure she had no children, and this other sweethearted one, I would provide her with many children. This is another one of those instances where we learn his ways are not our ways, and his thoughts are not our thoughts. We cannot make God in our own image. That is not healthy. And, and as you come to this, there's just these anomalies of providence. I don't get it. Why did God allow it? Why did God do it this way? Because note, it's not accidental. When we, when we see that she does not have children, that Hannah is barren, the scripture tells us twice, both in verse five and in verse six, both of them end because the Lord had closed her womb. Both of them say that. Because I'm so glad it does, because when the scriptures don't say that, what do we tend to think? Well, it just happened. That's the consequences she gets. We, we get all kinds of ideas. And, not, and, and, and sometimes just think, well, that's the natural order, maybe a hereditary problem. And, and we, we tend to divide our thoughts and our experiences in our world from the fact that actually God's hand is at work in everything. The reason she's not having children is the Lord closed her womb. The reason why the other one, the rival wife, was having children is because the Lord opened her womb. Well, why? The why is always known to God. The why is rarely known to us, except for the simple central reality that we can stand back and say, because someday I will understand how this serves the glory of God. Now, uh, how those practical providences work themselves out are very shocking. And it's not only uh, beginning to be challenging here, but in the days of Christ. Remember, if you look, were to look in John chapter 9, 
there is a blind man and his disciples, Jesus' disciples say to Jesus, Rabbi, why was this man born blind? Was it he who sinned or was it his parents who sinned? That's their worldview. Their, their, their simple understanding is working on this limited notion. We know that ultimately, when the final day of judgment arrives, God will bring recompense, judgment for every deed done in the body. That, that is clear with regard to the judgment that would be poured out on unbelievers. Sure. But because of that, we tend at times to think that God is kind of a tit-for-tat God every day. He's not. That's why God is patient, merciful, slow to anger. People aren't getting what they ought to get right now. The prophets often struggled with this. God, I don't understand. Why do the wicked prosper? And why are the righteous being trodden down? I don't get it. And here's what we need to learn to do in a healthy manner. Accept the fact that we don't get it. While still recognizing that God is God. He has not lost control just because I cannot conceive of what he's doing. He is still absolutely sovereign. Why is he blind? I don't enter. Did, did he sin or did the others? And, and what was Jesus' answer? John 9 verse 3. Jesus answered, it was not this man's sin or his parents. Now here, here, here's what would have been their natural thought. Well, then that's not fair. I mean, if uh, he didn't sin and his parents didn't sin and the man's born blind, then... That's not fair. Why would God do something like that? That's expecting that men are entitled to sight. Does God owe any man sight or hearing or breath or strength or a left hand or a right hand? We tend to think he does. We live, we live in a world that, that breeds a sense of entitlement and expectation. And when, but when we start to understand the realities of creature and creator, potter and clay, we realize, wait a second, he's the one who can make demands on us. I can't make demands on him. He, he doesn't owe me anything. The fellow who, who's blind can stand. Does God owe him the ability to stand? See, we, we, we miss these things at times. And what's amazing in this, and it says, neither he, this man, nor his parents sin, but that the work of God might be displayed in him. It is to serve God's purposes and display God's work. Now someone with our human nature and our, our, our temporary man selfish way of thinking, we're going to look at that and say, all right, so you're telling me this man had to live his whole childhood, his whole teenage and adolescent years, all he lived blind with all the struggles of that and even within a, a judgmental society, all of the stigma as people are pointing, parents must have sinned, you know? Wickedness must be there. You know, all of that stigma, it's inescapable in that society. And, 
they had to endure all of those things and all of those inconveniences, all of those discomforts, all of those uh, whispering words behind their backs, just so that this many years later, God would glorify himself by doing a mighty work? That doesn't seem fair. Well, do you remember that this world, the heavens, the seas and all that are in them, they belong to God? Everything is His to do with as He pleases. And so that changes things. When we have sight, what we ought we be saying? God, I'm thankful because, Lord, you have granted me sight. You have granted me strength. You have granted me breath. You have granted that I can walk. You have granted that I can work. You've, we, take, we take so much for granted not realizing it has all been granted by God. We need to get that clear in our mind. It's amazing because uh, whatever sense of unfairness someone may or may not have, next chapter in John 11, verse 3 and following, you begin to see um, the sister sent someone. Lazarus was sick. The close friend of Jesus sent someone to Jesus and said, Lord, he whom you love is ill. And in verse 4, Jesus heard it said, this illness does not lead to death. And then a couple verses later, what happened? Lazarus died. Was Jesus wrong? Never wrong. He, of course, is, is speaking with the purposes of God and knowing that it's not, going to, it's not going to lock him and leave him in death because actually, without any reports, he turns to his disciples and says, Lazarus has fallen asleep. And they're like, oh, good, he's just sleeping. No, Lazarus died. Oh, wait, you said it wasn't going to lead to death, but Lazarus died. And Jesus had waited two days before he made his journey there. By the time he had been there, he had already been in the grave for a season. The stench would be starting to come as you're moving towards the fourth day. It's like, no, don't, don't open it up. Open it up. Lazarus, come forth. Now, uh, we see that situation and we see the power of God. Now, what's interesting is, uh, as this unfolds, Jesus says in verse four, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of Man might be glorified through it. Wait a second. Listen. Could Jesus have where he was said the word and Lazarus would be healed? Yeah, we have occasions where he did that, don't we? Uh, people come to him and say, my, my servant is sick, my child is sick, and Jesus is able to, at his word, take care of it. He didn't do it here. He waited. He died. Now, I just want to just bear this in your mind for a moment. By waiting, ultimately God was going to be glorified and, and the power was going to be shown through the Son, but by waiting... What was Mary and Martha put through? Is it fair in order that God would be glorified and Jesus would be shown mighty? Is it fair that they would have to face such grief and sense of loss? Why do we always try to challenge God with what seems fair and right in our eyes? God help us. That's not right. Now, note this. 
God does, Jesus does not look on their grief and sadness with an insensitivity. How dare you grieve over somebody? How dare you be worried about your circumstances? You should only be thinking constantly about the glory of God and unaffected by everything else. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus sees them in their grief, and what does he do? He wept. He joins them in their grief. So it's interesting to note, it's not that God was not mindful of Hannah. It's not that when things have gone awry, uh, that, that somehow it got out of his hands. It doesn't get out of his hands ever. The, the challenge is sometimes our logical expectations of what we think God ought to do. We, we hold God to the standard of doing what's right in our eyes. Instead of understanding our position is to do what's right in the eyes of the Lord. And so again, here are these circumstances where in, in, in life, and I think we can think of our own experiences, and we can see certain trials, tragedies, and we think, why? God, why did you allow that? And it may be at times, we cannot figure any good purpose in it. I don't see how God will be glorified in it. I see how it hurts me. I see how it messes me up. I, I see how it affects so many other people, but I, I don't see how, how it serves the glory of God. And this is what I want to tell you. It's okay if you don't see it. Because this is all you've got are these two eyes in one single location. You can't see God's overarching and eternal purposes, but we can, by the hearing of the word, learn to sit back confidently and remember, God is in absolute control. Even when it seems like he's forgotten about us, he has not forgotten about us. Even when it seems like the wicked are prospering, like somehow God's lost, he has not. His ways are, are simply not our ways. And with, within this conundrum, I want us to see these two things. The first, the problem she's facing is that you have this rival wife. This rival wife, it tells us of her uh, towards the end of verse 2 initially. It says, Panenna had children, but Hannah had no children. So I mean, I'll, compare to these two, the, I'll compare them as the rival wife and the righteous wife, for want of a better term. Not that she's righteous in her own right, but she seemed to have, by grace, a real sense of who God was. And to really get a sense of, of her, her recognition of who God was and, and his work of faith in her life. You, we'll see that in the next chapter, in chapter 2, when, uh, when Hannah prays. But we see these two. One had no children, the other had uh, Children. Now, it doesn't even tell us the, the full details of them, except in verse 4 it says, When Elkanah was sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. We don't have a count, but you, you, you get the sense that she had lots of children. And in that age, in that time, in that society, the, the, the society's measured worth of a wife was significantly based on her ability to bear children, you know? Uh, and this was in that circumstance. One was having children and the other had none. It, it tells us further within, within this that as they would go, look at verse five, uh, four, uh, 6 with me. Her rival used to provoke her grievously. 
to ir- irritate her. Or the old King James, provoke her sore. It was not accidental. It was intentional. He wa- she wanted to hurt her. Do people do that? Sadly, they do. Here, here is, is one woman. What, well, what is she going to get by offending this other one? Yeah, the full extent and import of how sin moves us to think, I don't pretend to understand all of that. And, and why this woman would somehow benefit from this constant, repeated attacking, belittling, maligning. I don't know. What she would get out of it that would make, I don't know. Other than the fact that there was obviously some sort of wife rivalry. But it's not a small thing. It says uh, in verse 7, So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. So I'll give you a little picture. Uh, to Hannah's benefit, the normal living scenarios in those days is they weren't, she wasn't necessarily sharing a bedroom with her rival wife or even necessarily sharing a house with her rival wife. They might have separate houses or separate tents. And so there would be her tent and her tent. And you get the sense that these ladies did not mingle much. But every year, there was a circumstance when they had to go together to Shiloh. It was unavoidable. There was no escape for Hannah. And when that opportunity came there, Panina used it every single time. Still no children, huh? <laughs> you still can't have kids. What a worthless woman you are. What a waste of space. Just wasting our husband's time. Just to, what a trouble you are. I just, you can, how painful. How hurtful. And it, it's not accidental. Deliberate intentional she's planned it brothers and sisters you might come across people like this in your life who who like to hurt others who get some weird uh, to me weird sense of satisfaction or sense of pleasure or sense of superiority in in belittling you and mistreating you and talking bad about you in comparing this to that, you know, and they'll, uh, w- we live in such a, uh, an advanced age where it's done subtly, you know. They want to boast in maybe the accomplishment of their child or grandchild. And so they're saying, so how's your grandson doing? How's your son doing? Mine and wait, you didn't even let me answer. That's okay, I just wanted to tell you about mine's success anyways. I, I, I wasn't interested. I just wanted to let you know how great mine is. The whole point of me asking is so that when we're done talking, you feel inferior. Now, nobody actually says that, but that's what's going on. Uh, how, how's this going? How's that going? So that they can boast. This is the world we live in. We know people like that, and I hope as we listen to this, we don't think, yeah, that's me. No. 
It's not good. That should not be us. We should not be looking for ways to instigate, looking for ways to provoke, and looking for ways to hurt. But this is what was happening. In my mind, I'm thinking how difficult it would have been for Hannah year after year. How many years? I don't know. But the way that the story stated year after year, it means it's, it's a sustained period of time going and then maybe the second year, I sure hope that this year Panina is nicer than last year. Boom. And then again. And you can, you can, get, you can sense the increased dread. I'm going to have to see her again. And this is going to happen again. And what will I do? And what, what's, what's struggle about this is, why were they going to Shiloh? They were going to worship. And what ends up happening as Peninnah's doing this? They should be going with their hearts and their thoughts to, to, on the Lord and on his provision and on his kindness to them and on his, his might and his being focused on him. But I would imagine how hard it would be for Hannah as she goes there and this person is putting the focus on her and her weaknesses her shortcomings, and her inadequacies. I'll tell you this. Every one of us, we come here, we come to worship, we come to praise, we come to sing with our weaknesses, our shortcomings, our deficiencies, our inadequacies. We're not pe- perfect people, but we come to worship a perfect God. We don't, we don't come just to, uh, to, to hear about our mistakes Though it somehow comes out because all the sins that, that, are, that show in these narratives, we see ourselves in so many of these things. But we come to focus on our glory, our God, His answer, who He is. But it's tragic, but not uncommon. Church environments become places of contention. Backbiting, gossips, problems. Why does that happen? I'll tell you why it happens. Because we're people. But God help us that we would get our minds right. She is looking forward to to hurting and engaging and and seeing her superiority. She's looking forward to every year of sensing her superiority. But she's coming into the effective presence of one. What is Peninnah before the Lord of hosts as he's called here? Yeah, she's penina. She's just little. Of course, the word means coral or jewel, though she seems like anything but a jewel. Uh, and so we, we see this intentional provoking. The idea of to provoke her grievously in verse 6 and 7, it literally means this in the Hebrew, to excite within her inner commotion. Just, just gets everything muddled and frustrated and have you ever experienced that i know that i have and certain things and certain people certain phrases certain events they get us all mixed up inside and further it goes on to say uh in verse seven that she would do this every time so what was hannah's response to this rival wife it tells us in verse seven she wept and she would not eat. 
I mean, that, that, that's a tough situation. And her husband comes into it, knows the problems. When he sacrifices, he gives a portion of the sacrifice. There were lots of different sacrifices in the Old Testament. We learn from later in this chapter that among the sacrifices he was offering were the vow sacrifices. In those vow sacrifices, they would have to eat of them the same day in which the offering was done. You get all of this fun stuff out of Leviticus. And, and they would have to eat of it. And he would give the portions. And it, it says, the uh, older translations will say, he gave to Hannah a worthy portion. Some newer translations say he gave to her a double portion. It's a little bit confusing in the Hebrew because it seems to be an ancient idiom of sorts that almost literally comes across one portion for two noses. But the word nose sometimes takes a, a broader sense of face. One nose or one, one portion for two faces. And so the sense of it ends up being two portions, a double portion. Right? She got twice as much of it as everyone else. Now twice as much of the feast as everybody else got doesn't do any good to someone who is not eating. Okay, because she's weeping and not eating and, and she's in this state of bitterness and her husband says to her, what is the problem? Am I not more to you than 10 sons? I mean, am I not enough? For you, I love you even though you cannot have children. Am I not enough for you? And like so many men's experiences, our words are not always able to fix the problem, the difficulty, the sadness. And, and it, it almost as if, hey, stop focusing on that. Chin up. Look at me. I'm with you. Let's go. Or he needs to just probably come alongside of her, put his arm around her, and pray with her. <laughs> but, yeah, stop it. Am I not good enough? But his words do not cover, do not help, and, and she's left in, the, in, this, in this circumstance of tremendous want. And we move on from the conundrums of practical providence to what I would ca call the cry of personal pain. And look at this in verse 10. So she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. Okay? Deeply distressed. Uh, uh, some of the older translations there say a bitterness of soul. And actually the, the, the end of this verse where, where some of your translations will say she wept bitterly. It actually is, is a doubling up of the same word. Where it, it, would be, it would be more like she wept weepingly. Which again we would say, well what? That's just weird. Yeah, it would be in English. It's not weird there. It, it, it means it, it, was, it was an overflowing, overwhelming, uncontrollable weeping. Maybe some of you have seen someone in this situation. Maybe some of you have been in this situation. Where no matter what you, want, you try to do... Uh, you're just overcome by the grief and misery that you're feeling at that moment that you, you can't stop the waterworks, you can't stop the, the tears, you can't stop, it, it's just, it's got you in its grips. None of you look back on those experiences and say, 
I want that again tonight. It's horrible. You know, you look back on whatever occasion uh, uh, caused that and what was going on, and it's tough. Even probably thinking back on that uh, rears up and, and stirs that strife in you to a measure even now. Just to get this sense of how th this, it had reached a crushing point with her. It, just to get a, a further sense on it, in ver by the time you reach to uh, verse 12, it says, and she continued praying before the Lord. Literally, she multiplied her prayers before the Lord. This is beautiful. Because this is where you go. Here's the reality of it. Husbands can't fix everything. We have, and the, more we, the longer we live, the, the more we recognize how limited our control and our power is over things in this world. We can't, we can't fix the problems in this world. We can't fix the problems of our, of our country. We can't fix the problem. We are just so limited, aren't we? But here, who's she going to? The Lord. And she's multiplying her prayers in the state of, of, of great grief. She's just calling out to God. And, God, and, and it says further in verse 13, it says, Hannah was speaking in her heart, in her inner man. I mean, now her lips were moving, but she wasn't shouting. It was, it was silent. Her lips were moving, no sound. But the fullness of her inner being was being poured out before God. So much that it sa she says it this way when she describes it in a moment to Eli in verse uh, 15. I am a woman troubled in spirit. I've neither drunk wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Even later in verse 16, it says, for all along I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. That's a tough place to be. Now, I want to ask you this. Based on this story here, why is Hannah in that condition? Deeply distressed, vexed, misery of spirit. What sin did she do or did her parents do? Come on, don't do. We can't be like that, can we? But why would God put her through that? Well, we don't know. This is not unique to her. Even Paul says when everyone in Asia abandoned him that he was despairing even of life itself. He understood what it was to be brought low and to be sad and to be miserable. This is life. But that does not mean that God is not near. That does not mean that God is not in control, that God is not watching and that God is sovereign. And what's amazing is God is working all of these purposes. He's already planning to remove Eli and his sons because of their wickedness. He's planning to replace him with Samuel. All of this is done, but he's chosen to do it by a child that's not yet born, a child that will be a child of, of, of power and promise that he will grant to someone who cries out to him out of the vexation of their soul. Well, why did God do it that way? And here's the answer. Because this is what pleased him. It pleased him to do it this way. Not that he takes some tyrannical pleasure in our misery. That is a complete misunderstanding. But 
oftentimes when we face misery, we learn to realize, I'm under God. I'm not in control of things. My husband's not. No one can fix this. No one can make this right but God alone. And it just puts us down on our knees. It humbles us to the ground. And that's what happened here for her. And then we read on from there and we come through and we see in this great misery, in this great struggle, she makes this vow. She makes this promise. You could say the commitment of I would say we saw the cry of personal pain and this would be the commitment of praying priorities because what she ends up committing here is like, why are you doing that? God, well, what did she say in, uh, as she prays? In verse 11, it says, she vowed a vow, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. I'm gonna dedicate him as a Nazarite. I'm gonna dedicate him from the womb to an entire life set apart for God. All right, so you're asking God to give you a son that you're not even gonna raise. You're asking him to give you something, and then in the midst of that, you're saying, and if you give it to me, I'm going to give it to you. What's going on? All that benefit of, of having a son and the life of a son and all those things. Now, what's interesting here, she doesn't say many sons and many children. She says, you just give me the one, and I give that one to you. Where, where it almost seems like in the midst of prayer and in the midst of her desperation, as she's calling out for God to answer her prayer and meet her misery, suddenly she ultimately is not the highest priority in the center of her prayer. But she understands that, you know what? Even if you give it to me, I'm going to give him to you. Because I'm for you. He's for you. Everything is ultimately all about God. And so... It, it's interesting because the prayer request doesn't even seem like it would ultimately have as much personal benefit as she might be longing for. Wonderful change of priorities. And, and, and I will give him to you and he will be dedicated. And so what happens? In verse 19, Elkanah knows her. And it says at the end of verse 19, it says Elkanah knew his wife and the Lord remembered her now I want to ask you a question until the, that time had the Lord forgotten her yeah, no that's not how it is the, the here remembrance is not contrasted with forgetting what is it that God considered her desperation, considered her circumstance, considered her desire, considered her cry, and he answered. This term remembered is often spoken of considering the need or desire and acting. Not just, wait a second. I remember Hannah asking for something. What was it? Now see, that's what I do. And that's what you do. That's not what God does. In the course of God's time, according to his perfect wisdom, he answered her and gave her a son. 
Now what's interesting is, if you, if you were to carry on, she gives that son. God later gives her, gives her three more sons and two more daughters. <laughs> Wait, she didn't ask for that. Why did God give? Because God does what he wills. Surprises us with unexpected affliction from this world and, and enemies. Surprises us with unexpected bounty and provision on occasion. Because his ways are not our ways. And so then this, the child it says it, 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 in due time she conceived and she bore a son. And they were getting ready to go up again. And she says well let me not go up yet to the child is weaned. They wean the child which generally for the, in the Hebrew community when he's weaned at three years old. That's the, the historic timetable of when a child was considered weaned. And so a three-year-old toddler goes up once again to the temple. And she leaves him there. And she goes home without him. And, and, and in all of it, it's with great rejoicing. And, and I just wanna, want us to begin uh, to, to see a, a translation. A transition in the focus there towards the end it says this as she introduces the child to Levi says standing here in your presence praying to the Lord this was me verse 27 for this child I prayed and the Lord granted me my petition that I made him but she was barren yeah when we're dealing with God is there anything that is beyond his power? No. He's able to do mighty and unexpected ways. And here she fulfills her vow. Here's the one. And therefore I have. Now the term here says lent him to the Lord. Given him is a much better term here. I, I'm giving him to the Lord. The Lord gave him to me. And I'm giving him to the Lord. All the days of his life. And she does that. And it says, and he worshipped. And then the, the, the very uh, next chapter begins to show Hannah's prayer. And verse 11 of chapter 2 says, then Elkanah went home to Ramah uh, as they were going back. So as she did this, she did it with much joy. She did it with much prayer. And, and here then this child is delivered. That this, this child that God is going to call from an early age and bring to uh, so many different events. So, in just a simple review of what we get, what we get out of chapter one, I want to want to share just just these few thoughts with you. One thing that we we need to recognize and, and understand is, and this is a beautiful thing. When I'm in distress, or you're in distress, or things are just uh, affliction, provocation that's going on, we don't have to go to Shiloh. <laughs> We don't have to go to Jerusalem. We don't have to go up to a mountain or a cabin or a retreat. You know, I love the, the words of Psalm 145 verse 18. The Lord is near to all who call to him, to all who call to him in truth. Isn't that glorious? Because of Christ, we have a boldness and an access to that throne of grace anytime, anywhere. Any place, it, it is a, a glorious reality. And I want us to know this. The Lord is, we can see from this, is the Lord mindful of our afflictions? Yes. 
And so in the midst of all the struggles that are going on, not that it necessarily means that somehow knowing that he knows it removes all the distress. It doesn't. But we know that he sees it. He knows the challenges. He knows the struggles. He knows, and we can know that that enemy who's afflicting us, someday he will have to answer to God or she will have to answer to God someday but more than that someday God might yet change them and then come and say I'm so sorry that I did that to you and take what was an enemy and make them a friend pray for those who persecute you pray for your enemies love your enemies what a, what a remarkable transition that, that is brought in the Lord is mindful of our distresses of our inner commotion and further the Lord is the one who is in control of all those circumstances, right? No one can attack me. No one can say anything against me unless God allows it, right? The Lord weighs the heart and everyone comes to answer to him. I would say this, the Lord works in mysterious and manifold ways. Some with a selfish spirit momentarily might say the Lord works in mean ways, but that's not right. Now, the practical experience of dear Hannah was misery. And the Lord was at work. And so we have to be confident in God's secret purposes, even in that. And so the, the world's mindset has to be washed away. It's not that God works in mean ways. God works in meaningful ways. He always has purpose. What is his purpose? Somehow it serves for the glory of God. This illness this affliction, this misery serves to the glory of God. Now, with Paul's thorn in the flesh, was that because of his sin or his parents' sin? Neither. It was to keep him from a sin. So if, if affliction, distress keeps me from some sin, well, what sin is it keeping me from? I don't know, but God does. And so I can be confident that Romans 8, 28, for those who love God, what? And are called according to his purpose, he works all things together for good. As David said in the Psalms, it was good that I was afflicted. As Paul would probably say about his thorn in the flesh, he went from pleading with God to take it away to saying, I am well delighted, well content in my infirmity. What? <laughs> Accepting it by the grace that was at work. And so Hannah then ended up coming year by year back to see her son. She would bring him a coat every year uh, to replace the one that he may have outgrown and, and these events. So we, we start with the conundrum of practical providence. We will rarely have the answers for why God is permitting the problems in our lives and the problems in our world. We will rarely have the answers. But we do know this. God is powerful and his purpose will prevail. Further, um, the cry of personal pain. It is not uh, an act of disregard of God's sovereignty to say, God, this hurts. God, I need help. God, I need deliverance. God, help me. It, it, it's not, so you're saying that 
you know that I've permitted whatever's come to you so that you're asking me to remove it. Is it that you don't trust me to own? It's not a lack of trust. We, God calls us and allows us to pour out our souls before him. And in this, in the providence of God as it worked out in Hannah, the problems that she faced brought her to the place of pained prayer and then what? Yielded the purposes of God. So God, this God who is sovereign working everything, he hears our prayers? Yes. He answers our prayers? Yes, well how does it work? How is he both sovereign and, and, and in control of all things and working his perfect will as well as listening to and incorporating our prayers and answering them? Maybe we, many of us, won't be able to figure it all out and fathom it all out. Maybe it goes beyond the full comprehension of our mind. So we sit back humbly in worship and we say, God, you are in control of all things. We fall to our knees prayerfully and say, God, I need from you (laughs) these things. And we look to him patiently, trusting his will and purposes will always prevail in our lives. Let's pray. Lord, your word is so powerful and so clear. Lord, and we recognize that in this life that you have given to us and in this world, it will be fraught with pain. Even when we think of our Savior, we think of even all of the struggles and suffering that he underwent, all of the mistreatment and mocking. And Lord, we know that nothing that we undergo from the hand of men will ever come close to what was thrust upon our Savior. And Lord, we thank you that because of him we can come to you with our distresses, we can come to you with our cries, we can come to you with our needs. And we know, God, that you hear us. Lord, we know even that you will grant us the strength to be patient or you will grant us the the strength to endure. But from this passage, once again, we can understand that you are a God working forth your purposes and we're thankful for the kindness that you've shown in our lives that we know you that we can have this confidence in you, that we can wait up on the Lord and know that in the due time, you will do what is best for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.